This is Hunting Land, the podcast for landowners and land hunters with how-tos for habitat management and land investment. If you own, manage, or dream of owning land, this is the podcast for you. Well, we've talked about it before, but this week we're going to talk about it again. Seems like year after year, there's a lot of misinformation flying around, and uh, we want to get make sure we get right to the root of it and really learn the facts on a on a big problem that's hopefully not going to enter the state of Alabama, but it's real close, and that's chronic wasting disease. Uh, joining us again on the show is Chuck Sykes. Chuck's the director of Alabama Department of Conservation's Wildlife and Freshwater Fisheries. Chuck, welcome back to Huntland. Thank you, sir, for having me on. Well, man, I know uh, we're going to get into some of the specifics of CWD a little bit later in the show. Before we get there, though, we talk a lot about why it's such a big threat, but one of the main reasons is how much of an economic impact hunting has on Alabama and all really all the, all the states of the Southeast for sure, but definitely is national impacts. Let's talk a little bit and start there with, with just the economic impact of hunting. Tell me a little bit yeah. about right now what we're seeing. Well, as a biologist, it kind of hurts me to have to talk economics. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I want to talk about the resource, but in the world we're living in today, that's how you can get people's attention. CWD is not a deer hunting issue. It's not a DCNR issue. It's an Alabama issue. It's a nationwide issue just because of the impact that hunting has on the economy of the state of Alabama. Alabama's Black Belt Adventures commissioned a, an economic impact study last year and got the result. Hunters and anglers, it's about a $3.2 billion impact to Alabama. Hunting is about, go ahead. Well, and I understand what you're saying with regards to not wanting to talk about economics. Uh, you want to first talk about the resource, and I'm I'm the same way. You know, I mean, being a lifelong hunter, I I want to see that passed down, and I want to see the next generation doing it and having that right and continue on. But the economic impact of hunting also affects the conservation aspects of hunting. Oh, sure it does, and and that's when I speak to civic groups or when I speak to the legislature. Unfortunately, a lot of them don't hunt. Their constituents don't hunt. So I can't tell them what an important social tradition hunting is for a lot of the citizens of Alabama. For me, it's a way of life. My staff have dedicated their their careers and, and their life to managing wildlife. That doesn't really resonate. But when I say deer hunting alone brings in over a billion dollars to the state of Alabama's economy every year, they perk up. Right. So I get it. Whether you hunt or not, you can own a convenience store, you can own a feed and seed store, you can own a bed and breakfast or a hotel. Some way, shape, form, or fashion, deer hunting has an impact on the lives of most Alabama citizens. So we have to focus on that. As bad as it hates me to do so as a biologist, it's a fact of life. Well, you talk about those folks that have dedicated their lives to, you know, in their careers to managing wildlife. And CWD is the buzzword right now because it is such a big, it is such a big threat. And, you know, the potential for it to 
uh, cause a really big problem, which luckily we, we haven't had and hopefully it stays that way is really there. But let's talk about before we get into the deep details of CWD, talk about some of the positive things that, that are being done outside of CWD prevention, promoting deer and really just all game hunting in Alabama. First off, tell me about this is we're going into another year of the special opportunity areas. Tell me about how that's going. Joe, I, of course, I'm biased. That was one of our our programs that we started, and I think we knocked it out of the park. But as with anything that we do, no matter what decision we make, we're going to make somebody mad. That's just the way it is. So there have been the critics out there. So what we decided to do last year is we sent out a survey to uh, about 390, 380 people who were selected to go on those special opportunity hunts. I don't know if you uh, if you received one of the surveys or not. I sure did. The open rate on those things were through the roof. We had like 80% open rate and completion, which you know, you dig into all these stats, you know how that works. That's, that's astronomical numbers. Yeah. And in addition, we had We've all taken surveys, and at the end of it, it it will say, is there anything else you would like to add? Nobody ever adds anything because they're tired of doing a survey. It's easy to click A, B, or C or something like that. We had like 25 pages of Mm add-on, and there was nothing negative could have come from it. It was overwhelmingly positive, like 85% of everybody that replied said they're trip was excellent even the ones that had something negative to say was i didn't see a deer but it rained for three days i'm grateful for the opportunity sure so you know that was a negative comment we don't do anything that we don't get a bunch of negatives so personally i think we knocked it out of the park for people who have been there and filled out that survey that was just confirmation that what we're doing is a good thing and we're going to continue to grow that program and it's going to get better and better each year. You are a participant. What do you think about it? I like that there's an option now for what feels like a private land hunt. So if you go out west, there's tons of public land that is pretty much open, right? I mean, you can just go and hunt it, but so can everybody else. And and But then there's also lots of areas that have special permits and tags. And when you hunt those areas, your, your odds increase, your selectivity increases. You know, the hunters themselves are holding back because they're looking for higher quality animals. And just the overall experience is better just because you feel like you've got uh, less competition. And that's what that SOA program is, is it, it, you still, if you don't get drawn, you still got areas where you can go hunt all you got to do is buy your license and go hunt but this is like one of those things where when you apply you know you may not get drawn every year but heck i I just really enjoyed that it pushed me into an area i'd never been before i drew a turkey hunt for the uh, uchi creek soa and you know i'd never never hunted up there it was neat you know just and and also it forced me to scout a new piece of ground that i'd never been on it's it 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 gives you something to look forward to. And I'd also didn't have to worry about, well, am I going to be sitting up on the same bird as three other guys, you know, <laughs> so yep. Yep. it was, and, uh, 
it was a lot of fun. I was not, I was not successful, but that didn't have any, you know, I, I had a great time and, and I made some comments too on ways I think that it could be improved if, if those are out there. And, but you're right. I mean, anytime you get that kind of participation out of a, out of a survey that, that tells you that people were pretty passionate about what was happening. So, yeah, uh, you know, some of the reasons that we did it was we wanted to give our traditional public land hunters a different opportunity. Right. We wanted to give novice hunters something that wasn't so intimidating. You've got 500 acres to hunt rather than 50,000 to try to find out where to hunt. Mm -hmm. And we wanted to give people like myself and and, and you, typical public, people that don't traditionally hunt public land, we're we're fortunate that we have private property or leases that we're in, give them an opportunity to stick their toe in the water. Mm-hmm. And what we found out through that survey was like 35% of the people that went had never hunted public land before. Yeah. Um, and then another 40% hadn't hunted it in five years. So it, it accomplished everything that we were trying to do. We even had one individual that had never bought a hunting license before until they got drawn for that SOA hunt. So it, to me, it's doing what it needs to do. There's always room for improve for improvement, and there were some really good suggestions. So this thing, I mean, look, we're we're the third year in, as you said. We started it from scratch. There's going to be some growing things, and there's going to be a lot of learning that goes on. So we're increasing opportunities with small game. Last year, this year, we opened up some dove hunting opportunities. So each year, it's going to get better and better. Well, the thing that upset me the most about it was as I was walking around my, my 500 acres trying to strike up a bird, I ran across some of the most amazing deer sign I'd seen in a really long time. <laughs> so yep. I was sitting there going, man, I wish I could come back here and bow hunt. I found some jam up bow spots, you know, with big rubs and all kind of deer trails and tracks. And I was thinking, man, you know, I wish I could draw this section on this piece of ground but it did make me think too what what i think would be cool is uh if you allow you know you could have just a little sign out book or something if you draw one of these places and there's a very probably very minimal chance you're going to draw your exact unit over again you know you it'd be cool to be able to share your experience with the next guy that's going to hunt your your area and kind of point him in the right direction with some things that you've seen sign wise and believe it or not, we've had quite a few requests for that. We created, to go along with our adult mentor hunting program, we created a closed Facebook group for those participants and their mentors to be able to continue to share ideas and follow-ups throughout the year. Mm-hmm. So that's something that we're looking at now is creating something for the SOA hunters where they've got a forum like that through us that they can share their ideas, what they found, their their tips, and where to go. And uh, you're you're not the only one that said yeah. that. So I well, I've still got it. That, I, I've still got that area marked on my maps. So uh, if somebody somebody gets that unit in Uchi Creek, I'll send them the I'll send them the GPS coordinates of where they need to put their bow stand. But well, you brought up the uh, adult mentored hunt programs. I, I I was able to do that last year as well and mentor. My wife and I both were able to do it. We we both were able to mentor a couple of hunters, and that's another great program that you guys 
that you know we everybody's heard the problems with hunter recruitment but you guys have pinpointed that the adults are really where you have to focus if you want to create more hunters because the kids even though you can take a youth hunting and i don't recommend you stop doing that they don't have the ability to go out and hunt themselves uh you know they've got they still need an adult to take them and and help fund their pursuit but if you teach an adult that adult can teach a kid and i had a blast doing that how's that going man again that's something that we just decided that we would try just based on experiences with, with my own staff people that had worked for the department long before i got there and then in conversations through the years found out they didn't hunt and why they didn't hunt was because nobody had ever asked them so we decided to try that and i think last year we had 480 applicants from seven states apply from as far away as new jersey the average age of our applicants was 42 years old so there's a huge need for that and it it's a reality check we're we're dealing with people that work with us every day that we go to church with we go to kids ball games with that all we'd have to do is just ask right they're they're really wanting to know but it's hard as an adult to admit you don't know something and it can be kind of intimidating to get into hunting at that late stage in life but as rewarding as it is for the participants, it's been just as rewarding for my staff. And I'm glad you and your wife got to do it because we, we've all taken kids before. But trying to teach on that novice level to someone who is your own age, that throws a whole new wrinkle into mm-hmm. things. And it has been tremendous for the morale of our staff because, as we talked about earlier, we constantly hear complaints and and even on some of the great things that we do it's thank you that was great but you really should have done it this way right (laughs) i appreciate your hours and hours and hours of work but uh here's what i think let me tell you how to do that's right (laughs) so the mentor hunt we have yet to have that when those people say thank you they genuinely mean it and there is no but after it so my staff has gotten as much out of the program as the as the new hunters have and it's really rewarding to look back through these facebook posts and forums and stuff at people that we taught to hunt for that weekend who are now two years out and are sharing their own experiences with us and with other new hunters coming into it so we are moving the needle. We Everybody can. It, it's not that big of an issue. If you replace yourself, you're, we're good. If everybody that's our age will teach one new person to hunt each year, we're never going to have a problem. That's right. You know, that you hit the nail on the head because when you read articles, you see news about the dropping number of hunters not just total number, but actual percentage of, of the population is dropping that is that are, are hunting. It feels, because they're talking about millions of people, it feels like it's an insurmountable task. Like, oh, well, that's, some, that's a problem that's too big for me to focus on. But what you just said right there is key. If you'll get out there and just take one person 
if you can turn one person into a hunter that wasn't, then you've done your job and we'll continue on and we'll continue to have a voice in the future. Clint and I just did a show recently on, believe it or not, of all things, it was on guns imported from Germany. And we were talking about drillings and how the reason why there's a market for these guns is that in Germany, when someone passes away, their firearm, they have like two months where they can sell it to a licensed firearm distributor or it has to be destroyed. And so what's happening is all these fine uh, German drillings are being destroyed in mass on mass levels because the sentiment for hunting and for firearms in Germany is it's not popular. It's not something that people really are interested in anymore. And so they're just letting them go. And that same kind of shift can happen here and you can, and you'll lose your right. If we don't have a big voice, we'll lose our right. So I'm glad to hear you guys are doing what you can do to push hunting because it is such a big economic driver. It is such a big part of our social heritage. I don't know what I'd be doing if I wasn't a hunter and an angler. Me either. I mean, again, <laughs> I've dedicated my whole career to managing wildlife and, and helping people utilize it properly. So during these mentored hunts and even some of the ones that, again, we, we've got to, to rethink how we teach somebody to do this because the people, 90% of the people that are coming in now are not coming in for the same motivations that you and I hunt for the challenge to be outside, to be in an animal's backyard and match wit. They're, they're doing it for completely different reasons. So we're having to, to tailor that message differently. If you and I shoot a deer, we can talk about, man, that was 10 ring you smoked in that. You can't do that for a lot of these people. Mm-hmm. It, it's a completely different emotional experience for them. And we've had several that have attended that were actually vegans. One of them really? is, is going to be a hunter. One lady is not. But what we did is we taught her the value of hunting. We taught her the value of that protein source that she knows where it came from. She's not at a point in her life where she feels comfortable enough harvesting her own meat, but she has made friends with these other new hunters and they are supplying her with meat. Wow. So now she is an ambassador for hunting and hunters, even though she is not one, but she's getting that into a market that, yo, I'm never going to be able to go talk to those people. Right. <laughs> if I do, they're not going to listen to me. Sure. So we're creating ambassadors for hunting and hunters in, in areas that our traditional user groups will never get into. So we're broadening, we're broadening our footprint. Well, it's, there's a lot of positive things going on. And, and it's unfortunate that as much time is spent dwelling on the negative things that are out there. But un- unfortunately, negative things make better headlines than positives do. And sure they do. One of the threats, I'd say the, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but seemingly the biggest threat to deer is chronic wasting disease. And unfortunately, there's a lot of misinformation out there on chronic wasting disease. So before we get into what you guys are doing to combat this, I want to clear up just some, let's just get some 
some do some fact finding and answer some questions I see all the time regarding chronic wasting disease. So to start, what is it, Chuck? I mean, what is chronic wasting disease in deer? It is a prion or prion, however you want to pronounce it, based disease, which is a misfolded protein. So it's not a virus and it's not a bacteria. All right. It is basically the same disease as BSE or mad cow disease in the cattle. It's the same disease as scrapie in sheep and CJD in humans. There seems to be a strong species barrier that's preventing these diseases from jumping from one to the other, but they are variants of the same malformed protein that basically does the same thing to humans, to deer, to cattle, to sheep, is it eats away the brain. So that's a big question I see is, you know, so let's start there. It's basically the same disease, but it's, but it's not. So can deer transmit to sheep, to cows, to humans, this, their version, which is chronic wasting disease? Right now, there is no scientific evidence that CWD, chronic wasting disease, can jump from one species to the other one. But there is a lot of study being done on this. Not saying that it can't, that it won't ever. But right now, with me talking to you today, there is no scientific evidence that CWD has jumped from a deer to a human or from a deer to a cow. Is there any science on how chronic wasting disease started? Because it's not a new thing. It's been around for quite a while. Yeah, the first case of of documented chronic wasting disease was in Colorado in, I think, 67 in a captive deer facility near Fort Collins. That was the first time that CWD, that that disease was given a name. I kind of relate it to, to feral pigs on movement. It started off real slow. And over almost 30 years, it only made it into eight or 10 counties. But then 30 years later, you see a spot in Saskatchewan at a captive elk facility. And then it spread from there. And then you see one pop up in Illinois or in Ohio or in Pennsylvania. So feral pigs take up ground very slowly on their own. They've been here since the explorers came over, and we never did have hogs in in our part of Alabama until the late 70s. So they had been here 150 years and hadn't made it up past two or three counties. But then when people started putting them in the back of a truck and carrying them, then we've got hogs everywhere now. CWD basically travels that same route. Natural expansion is extremely slow, but you can go, and we've got all this on Outdoor Alabama, you can go and look at the progression from that first case that was documented in Colorado up till today, and you can watch it spread. And you know it's by people inadvertently moving either live animals or carcasses into new areas. And again, it's about like, feral hogs. When the first ones was brought to Chow County, I can remember it vividly when I was a kid. 
it happening. And we thought that was the biggest thing in the world. Man, we're going to get to hunt hogs. Right. <laughs> well, I wish we had known then what we do now. Right. So well, I'm not saying it was done maliciously, but facts are facts. It's, it's spread nationwide due to it being moved in the back of the truck. So right now, you mentioned Colorado and the expansion. I know we've had a case in Mississippi. I know we've had a case in Tennessee. Where chronic wasting disease found currently? Is it, you, do you have a number of states it's found in? Or can you kind of give us a, you know, is there a dividing line where, where it hasn't gone? Well, beyond? it was the Mississippi River. And now, as you said, I think Mississippi has 19 cases right now. And Tennessee's got upwards to 200. So there's still a 50-mile radius that we've got before it gets into Alabama. And again, with it moving slowly through natural progression, it may be two years, it may be 10 years. But if somebody puts it in the back of a truck, that's when we're going to get it sooner. All of this is on our on our website. There's, I think, 26 states and three Canadian provinces that, that currently have CWD. You mentioned people moving carcasses and you know the natural progression. How do deer get it? Have they pinpointed how it's transmitted or how it's spread? Yeah, it is transmitted through bodily fluids, saliva, feces, nose-to-nose contact. That's how it's spread. In areas where the prevalency rate is extremely high, since it is a protein-based disease, it can actually get into the environment. Mm. It can get into the soil. It can be taken up by plants. Mm. So environmental contamination in areas where the prevalency rate is is high is a possibility. When you're out in the field and like you say, hopefully this is, hopefully it never happens, but with it being all around Alabama, it's pretty good chance eventually it will. If someone, and I'm sure y'all get calls all the time where people are seeing sick deer, seeing deer acting funny, what does it look like? What can people well, do to identify all right, that? And this is, we get calls all the time. I've got a deer with CWD. Well, no, you don't. There's no way to look at a deer and know that it, it has CWD. Mm. The only way we can know that it has CWD is we take a sample of tissue either from the brain stem or the lymph nodes in the, in the back of the throat and have it analyzed. CWD is an EHD, episodic hemorrhagic disease, or brain abscesses. They all manifest themselves in the same way, just like you can't look at somebody and say, well, you've got the cold, you've got a common cold, or either you've got pneumonia or you've got the flu. You all have fevers, you have body aches, you don't feel good. So just looking at a deer, you cannot tell it has CWD. 90% of the deer that test positive for CWD look like a normal, healthy deer because it takes it can take up to 18 to 24 months for the disease to manifest itself. So that deer can be a carrier for a year and a half before it ever shows any outward signs of having CWD. Now, you guys are monitoring. Uh, y'all are doing, I guess, is it random sampling? How long have y'all been doing the, the monitoring for CWD? We have been 
actively monitoring since 2002. And each year we sample more. A lot of it back in the early years was deer that hunters harvested off of WMAs that come to check stations. It's working with a few taxidermists and processors. It's working with our DMAP cooperators who are on our deer management assistance program and through our herd health checks where we were doing our fetal collections and things like that all over the states during the summers. That's where the majority of the samples have come. Um, We've tested more than 7,000 deer. And as of me talking to you today, we have no CWD in Alabama. We have tested deer in all 67 counties. What we are shifting to now is basing research from other states. Roadkill deer tend to have a higher predominance of CWD in those states where it's prevalent than hunter-harvested deer. I mean, Joe, it makes sense. CWD turns their brain to mush. So they've got a better opportunity to walk out in front of a car. Right. So we've worked with, with our Department of Transportation where they notify us and we're picking up roadkill deer. We are still um, working with hunter-harvested deer. We are putting drop-off freezers in every county of the state this year. That will be posted on our website soon where concerned hunters can help us by dropping their deer head off in a freezer and we'll come through and collect it and have it tested. We're working with a wide array of of people helping us get the number of samples we need to be to feel confident that we're testing everything that we can do and we are as prepared as we can be. You mentioned earlier that there's no scientific evidence that CWD can be transmitted to humans and that's one of the biggest fears and biggest concerns uh, that I see that people hunters or not have. Is there any way is there anything about chronic wasting disease that's dangerous? To humans, I mean, we talked about the economic impact already. I mean, that's dangerous, in, in my opinion. Yeah. Dangerous well, to humans uh, and conservationists. But is there anything the, out there that they, people need to be worried about? Well, the Centers for Disease Control, I mean, they're the, the health, the human health organization. They issued a statement a couple of years ago that says if you harvest an animal in a CWD positive area, they suggest you have that animal tested before you consume it. That's just out of an abundance of caution, and I understand that. Right. Because there's still a lot that we do not know about this disease. So hunters in Alabama, if I kill a deer in Choctaw County, I ain't worried about it. Right. If I go to Texas and kill a deer in a CWD zone, yeah, I'm going to have it tested. Or if I go to Iowa and kill a deer in a CWD zone, yeah, I'm going to have it tested just for peace of mind. Right. And we've, we've had people in Alabama that have hunted in other states. I think we had a gentleman last year in Colorado that killed mule deer. And a lot of those areas are mandatory testing. If you kill a deer there, you must have it tested. Hmm. He did everything right. He had his meat processed out there. He vacuum sealed it. He had it shipped back home. Two weeks later, they called him and said, your deer tested positive. So wow. he called us, we went and got the meat, and we disposed of it properly. Wow. So that's why hunters are concerned. And look, we want them to be aware. We don't want people to be scared to hunt deer and eat deer. 
that right. is the worst possible thing that can happen. So we're putting these drop-off locations in every county where if someone is concerned, they can drop that head off. We have even purchased a testing, a diagnostic machine that's housed at Auburn University. We're partnering with the Department of Agriculture and Industries. It's at their lab. They have a technician that runs it. We're taking this seriously, and we're doing everything we can to keep the hunters in Alabama safe and our deer herds safe. So there's no cure, obviously, that anybody's been able to pinpoint for chronic wasting disease. And even if there were, how would you apply it to wild animals? You know, I mean, it's, it's one of those things that even if there were some vaccination or, or treatment for it, there's not really anything much you could do to control it. These aren't captive animals. You guys are doing these check stations, right? Where folks can, you mentioned the, the freezers, but are y'all going to be doing the, you know, random checking? Uh, tell me about what's going on on the state lines. Well, on the state lines, we have, it's been illegal to bring a live deer into the state of Alabama since the late 70s. It has been illegal to bring the carcass of a deer harvested in another state back into Alabama for the past two years. And we're not the only state doing that. I think there's 26 states that have identical or very similar regulations. So we want hunters to be aware that inadvertently, if they go to Illinois and harvest a buck and just throw it in the back of the truck and, and bring it back home, unknowingly, they could be exposing Alabama to CWD. I couldn't yeah. live with myself if I was that guy. No. and Just if because you... I didn't take a few minutes to debone that deer and, and do the things right. And if, if you look at the, the stats on how many people are hunting across state lines, you know, that may seem like, to say it in the, in the way you just said it, it may seem like, well, how many people could that really be? It's tens of thousands of people that are coming back to the state from hunting in other states that are CWD positive. It's a real threat that if people are not aware of it, they need to be aware of it and understand why y'all are doing that. It's not a, it's, it's certainly something that y'all, I'm sure y'all would rather not be spending your time doing that, but that's well, how it spreads. That's right. There was a study done a couple of years ago and they looked at four counties in Wisconsin that I think have been positive since 2002. A couple of areas of those counties, the prevalency rate in mature bucks is approaching 60%. So if you kill a buck, a mature deer, and I think they were actually calling a mature deer a two-year-old. If you kill a buck in one of those counties, you had a coin flip chance of that deer having CWD. And what they did is they pulled zip codes of hunters nationwide that hunted in those four counties. There was probably, that was just in one year, there was probably 25 zip codes in the state of Alabama that hunted in one of those four counties. And I can assure you, nobody from Alabama went to Wisconsin to shoot a yearling doe. Right. They went up there to shoot a mature deer. So they had a 50-50 chance that that deer had CWD. So it is hugely important. We, we worked a joint law enforcement detail with Tennessee last year in November, and we will be working more with them soon because they have the same carcass import regulation that we do. And this wasn't anything undercover. This was officers sitting in a truck 
on an overpass watching for whole deer to come up under that overpass on a four-wheeler trailer in the back of a truck. Mm -hmm. And in the first three hours, we made six arrests. That's bad enough. Yeah. But all six people admitted that they knew what they were doing was illegal. Some of those deer came from as far away as Kansas. So they went through a half a dozen different states and broke carcass regulation laws in a half a dozen states because they didn't put an importance on it. I I, I understand some people feel like that they don't really believe it. You know, it's kind of like there's been lots of things in the news and, you know, we've we've been misinformed in the past. And I, I get that. I understand that there's people that feel that way. But is that the only reason they ignore it? I mean, is it is it it's not that big a deal to debone an animal. Look, Joe, it, it, you know this. It's human nature. It's really hard for most people to be proactive on something. Mm. We're reactive. So until something bites us in the rear, we don't place a whole lot of emphasis on it. Right. We're doing CWD stakeholder meetings around the state right now. I know you're going to put this up on your, on your notes where people can find out where they are. We had our first one in Vernon, Alabama, which is up there in northwest Alabama. You've got Tennessee with CWD, and you've got Mississippi with CWD right there. I think I had eight staff at it. There were 16 people that showed up. Wow. The first stakeholder meeting that Mississippi had after they popped hot, they filled up a gymnasium. Yeah. I don't want us to be like Mississippi. I want people to be informed before it's too late. I agree. I mean, just look at what's happened to their football team. <laughs> <laughs> not, yeah, I'm not, no, not, not going to go down yeah, that road. I'm just joking around. No, but in all seriousness, I, it's just get in front of it, man. And I don't. I'm sure you're tired of talking about it, but you got to keep talking well, about it if you don't. If you're not getting participation, yeah, I, I just want people to be informed any topic, there's going to be naysayers and there's going to be folks that's beating the drum trying to help you. I understand that. But how could you live with yourself if you knew you brought something to the state of Alabama that could negatively impact a billion-dollar industry and the way of life for so many people just because, called spade a spade, you was too lazy to take another 30 minutes to debone your deer out before you brought it home? Yep. No, it is. And you're, and you're exactly, you're stealing by doing that. You're potentially stealing the future from a lot of people. Has there been any research done with regards to the states that have chronic wasting disease and it's become a big problem on, on the em- economic impact that it's had with regards to say oh, license yeah. sales? Oh yeah. Yeah, it, it has. I mean, there, there is number after number after number that's floating around out there right now. I was in Minneapolis, St. Paul last week at one of our national meetings, and I was in meetings with with directors from all over the country. One of the topics that we had was the Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies conducted a study. uh, It was a survey that they sent out to, to every state director. Some of the preliminaries on that I think 30 states, as of when, when I was there the other day, had completed this survey. But on average, 
those states are spending over a half a million dollars a year just on CWD surveillance. Wow. A half a million dollars a year. And you know, we don't get anything from the state general fund. So exactly. that means I'm going to have to take money away from another program to go just for this. Right. There's one state, and I'm not going to say they, they're knee-deep in it. They are anticipating having to test 40,000 animals this year mm. at an average cost of $25 an animal. million bucks just on testing. That's not staff time. That's not anything else. That's just on testing. Right. There are studies that have shown some states that were aggressive in their management have kept the prevalency down. And some states that have not been, it's going through the roof. The science is out there. This isn't something that's made up. This isn't something that I'm tired of seeing on all the Facebook geniuses out there. This is just another way for the state to make money. Show me how it's costing me a half a million dollars a year on testing. How am I making money off of that? Right. How's that state that's spending a million dollars a year on testing? How is that making them money? It's going to cost them a lot, a lot more in the long run. Uh, it's going to cost everybody a lot more in the long run if we don't. This is definitely one of those cases where an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Sure. Absolutely. Well, I hope today didn't sound like a, uh, a scare tactic because uh, it wasn't meant to be. It's really just it's something that I think, I think we can't let this fall out of the top of people's minds because it is such a potentially widespread and big threat to the state of Alabama, the citizens of Alabama, but not just Alabama, it's, it's everybody. That's what you're dealing with, but this is, this is not state lines. You know, this is something that's a, no, this, this is a national, the, a national issue. I was actually um, invited to DC um, on the 17th to speak to a group of legislators on CWD. There's a lot of national talk right now in Washington, DC, this is this is a major deal nationwide that some money is fixing to be put toward more monitoring, more research to try to figure out what we can do. This is a national issue. And I don't want to scare people to death. I don't want them to quit hunting. I'm not going to quit hunting. That's the worst thing that can happen. They need to be informed and they need to know what precautions to take. It's nothing more than, you know, when it's cold and flu season, you need to wash your hands. Not saying you're not going to get a cold, but you know things to do to help prevent yourself from getting it. That's right. basically what we're doing for the state of Alabama. We're doing everything in our power to prevent this disease from coming here. We're trying to educate people where they know what to look for, where they can help us. And then in the event that it does get here, we have a plan in place that we're ready to implement based on hundreds of hours of research and trials on the ground in other states as what worked and what didn't work. I'm not going to be caught flat-footed on this. We are as prepared as we can possibly be if it ever gets here, and we just want people to be prepared too and highly encourage them to come to these seminars and ask questions for themselves. Don't rely on what you see on Facebook. Don't rely on what you hear around the hunting camp. Come ask questions for yourself. 
Right. Well, I'm going to put a link to all of those uh, meetings, the meeting schedule that you guys have for this fall. I'll put it in the show notes here. Chuck, before we before we get off here, anything you want to remind folks of as we go get get close? Uh, bow season's just a couple of weeks away. What uh, it is? It's hot and it's dry. It's going to eventually rain. Don't worry about planting your plots right now. It's too hot and too dry. Get out in the woods, find a good oak tree. They're going to be dropping. That's what I'm going to be doing this weekend: is scouting and putting some bow stands up. And we had way too many hunting accidents last year, too many fatalities last year from people falling out of tree stands and not wearing safety harnesses. While it's hot and dry, check all your stands. Make sure the bolts and and nuts are solid. Make sure your straps are solid. Don't wait till opening morning and go try to sit in a stand before daylight that you hung three years ago. That is a recipe for disaster. Every hunting accident comes across my desk, and I'm tired of seeing that a 55-year-old man fell out of a stand not wearing a harness, and he's dead. This isn't kids. This isn't people going through Hunter Ed. These are people that are exempt from Hunter Ed, just like you and me, that say we've done it. For 30 years, I know what I'm doing, get complacent, fall asleep, and all of a sudden you're either paralyzed or your family is dealing with the loss of a loved one. Yeah. Well, it's completely preventable. You know, Chuck, I, I know you know I fell when I was 19, and it was when I was stepping from the stand to my first set of, first set of steps, and it was because I got disconnected from that tree for just a split second. And if you yep. just my my thing I say to everybody is take the time and figure out what you've got to do. The lifelines are the best thing that they've come out with, but you don't have to have a lifeline. Never disconnect yourself from the tree for even a split second. Don't disconnect yourself from the time your feet leave the ground till you get back on the ground because it's all it takes is a is a fraction of a second and a limb breaks and you're down. And there's no stopping it. It it happens so fast. You're not going to catch yourself. The other thing with that, and I saw this stat the other day, it really surprised me, but about a third of the tree stand accidents that happen are happening in ladder stands. And I think that there are guys out there who are, they're taking the precaution when they're using a climber. They're taking the precaution when they're using a lock on and they're using their safety harness or their lifelines and they're staying connected. But then, and I've seen it. Then they go to the ladder stand and they climb right on up there and don't wear anything because it's a ladder. And yep. that's there's just as many people falling, getting hurt, and getting killed, falling off of falling off a of ladder stands. Like you say, a strap gets chewed through by a squirrel. It didn't get tightened up the right way and it twists around on the tree. And the other thing is when they're putting those stands up is when they're not doing it another a little trick that you can do. Next time you're hanging a ladder stand is carry yourself a climber with you. If the tree is the right size that you can use a climber, if it's not, carry a set of climbing sticks, stay connected, get up there, go ahead and get up in that tree and have a buddy and get a rope and pull the ladder stand up to you while you're in the tree and connected to it and go ahead and get it ratcheted to the tree before anybody climbs up that ladder. Because a lot of people are climbing up those ladders with that thing just leaning up against the tree. That's another thing. So 
man, that's a good reminder. And, uh, man, I just hope everybody has a safe season because it's, it's, a, it's a terrible thing. And I, I hope you don't see any of those accidents this year. I, I think we'll keep bringing that up as, until we have a year where we don't have any. That would suit me just fine. We want everybody to buy a license, get out there and hunt, be safe, enjoy themselves. If they ever have any questions, all they got to do is give us a call. And I appreciate you giving us the opportunity to uh, put the facts out there. Yes, sir. Well, Chuck, have a good season. We'll talk to you again soon. All right, man. Thanks. Well, I hope a lot of you guys like me grew up hunting and hunting means as much to you as it does to me. I know it's a big part of my personality. It's a big part of my my culture. It's a big part of uh, what I want to pass on to my children and, and my friends. And it's CWD is something that we need to keep our eyes on. We need to pay attention to form your own decisions, obviously, uh, your own opinions, but, but get educated and make sure you're doing everything you can do to uh, prevent this, the spread of this into your area. So just do your part, guys. That's all I can really say about it. It's, uh, I hope it doesn't head this way, but it, it sure doesn't look good. Y'all get out there this fall. Have a good time hunting, fishing, whatever you like to do outdoors. Appreciate y'all listening, and uh, we'll see y'all next time. This week's show has been brought to you by Joe Baya and Clint Flowers, members of the top producing team at National Land Realty, the fastest growing and most innovative land brokerage in the nation. With hunting season right around the corner and interest rates at historic lows, now is a great time to buy or sell land. If you want to learn more, shoot us an email at pros at landhunting.com or call us at 855-NLR-LAND.